So it might not seem like it, but it's the middle of the day here in Beijing. The air is so polluted that it's darkened the sky. Most of the progress towards the environment and saving it and getting rid of carbon, etc., has been done on a local level. Some people with the goal well, of making energy both cheaper but also completely clean. And so with the right innovation, uh, clean energy is actually cheaper than dirty energy. Solar has gained 17 times the rate of our economy. There are 2.6 million jobs in our country in clean energy. The world's biggest energy agency believe the oil market will rebalance by the second half of this year, but there are still questions about price. Brent crude is down by more. We will unleash the power of American energy, including shale, oil, natural gas, and clean coal. What we're going to do, folks, is going to be so special. Welcome to Off the Charts, the podcast of the Energy Policy Institute at the University of Chicago. I'm your host, Jeff McMahon. Jim Connaughton is with us today. He was the chairman of the White House Council on Environmental Quality for the eight years of the George W. Bush administration. He was also director of the White House Office of Environmental Policy. He's got private sector chops too, having been an executive and policy advisor for Exelon, Constellation, and C3 Energy. He's currently the president and CEO of Nautilus Data Technologies, a maker of waterborne data centers. Jim, thank you for joining us today. Thanks, Jeff. Glad to be here. We want to talk today about the first year of the Trump administration, a year with Republicans in control of all three branches of government, and how that has played out for the environment, and also to glean your insights into the best path forward in this political climate for a Republican solution to the carbon problem. Have you had any role in the Trump administration? No, I have not, uh, although I'm very well acquainted with lots of the professionals who have. I'm a decidedly private sector guy now and uh, happy to be far out of the orbit, but fairly well attuned to what's going on. Okay, good. So soon after Trump was elected, you appeared at Georgetown University and you said we should give Trump a chance to find more balance, more balance between the U.S. and other countries economically but also more balanced environmentally. China in particular, I know you're concerned about carbon leakage, about the risk of the U.S. controlling its emissions only to have them go up in China or India or other developing nations. So on the environmental front, we all know Trump is pulling the U.S. out of the Paris Agreement, and I know you yourself have had mixed feelings about the Paris Agreement. Do you think an American pullout will have a more balancing effect? Well, I think we have to start with first principles, which is what's on the books in America and elsewhere, uh, what's on the books uh, elsewhere, especially in the big developing countries like China, uh, and then look at the sort of the policy frameworks behind it. Um, it is interesting that America, on a bipartisan basis at the federal and state level, now has a policy book of over 100 mandates uh, that either directly or indirectly are controlling for a substantial amount of emissions abatement um, and some just emissions constraint. In addition, the private sector, through good old-fashioned innovation, um, has roared ahead of the policy uh, book with things like fracking for gas, which is fully displacing coal in the electricity mix, um, with the now the advent of electric vehicles, which can take advantage of this lower uh, emission power, 
uh, and then um, an unbelievable amount of market-driven energy efficiency across U.S. economy that largely goes unaccounted for uh, and yet has been a key market-driven um, uh, reason for our emissions abatement. So that's the positive side of the ledger, uh, quite bipartisan uh, and interestingly quite market-driven. Uh, the challenge in the course of the last 15 years, uh, China's emissions have gone up by 3 billion tons. Uh, India's have gone up by 1 billion tons. That's largely driven by coal. Uh, and coal is largely about the energy used to create you know, manufacturing and other productive outcomes. Uh, and so we had this gross mismatch between what's happening in America and the other developed countries uh, and what's not happening in the key emerging countries. So if we don't get the policy framework right, we could end up in a situation where things continue to get worse at no net economic benefit rather than better at significant economic benefit to all. So do you feel like we're moving in that direction toward that stronger policy framework? Have you seen developments that suggest we're going that way? Uh, no, I think uh, I think the field is blank. Uh, so as I indicated, America, Japan, Europe, Canada, Australia, there's a very solid policy book that could be strengthened, and it could be strengthened well with conservative methodologies, market-based solutions that are performance-based and technology-neutral, uh, but are still mandates. So they still come in the form of, of mandatory policy, but are much more effective for innovators and for investors um, to deliver you know, bigger outcomes at lower cost. So that's on the developed country side of the ledger. We're not going as fast as we could, producing more economic benefit. On the developing side, um, I am a huge supporter of the goals of the Paris Agreement. So I have to make that very clear. And I believe those goals are attainable, but they're attainable only if you have an international policy framework that provides discipline to actually achieving them. And the Paris Agreement does not. So, um, you know, I differ with the uh, some in the administration uh, who might downplay the significance or the importance of the climate issue. But I do agree that regardless of your perspective, the Paris Agreement is utterly uh, 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 out of the capability of producing the outcome that it seeks to achieve. And most people know it. Uh, and so we now have this challenge of regardless of where the Trump administration is, the other international players um, are making you know, very little progress in putting together the components of an international structure that will actually deliver on its ambitions. How would you do that? How would you go about um, trying to make that kind of progress? Well, I actually think it's really straightforward. Uh, we have an international framework that has stood the test of time, that is binding. It is internationally enforceable through border adjustments, such as excise taxes, and includes the participation of all of the major emitters including China and India, accepting those binding constraints, and that's called the Montreal Protocol. And its governance and its methodology has delivered fully on its obligations to cut and abate ozone-depleting substances, and those same institutional structures and binding characteristics could be applied to climate change on a sector-by-sector -sector basis with what I believe would produce similarly effective and actually accelerated uh, outcomes. And yet, it is fascinating to me that although most of the diplomats go to both meetings, we have two entirely different structures for what are essentially similar international abatement issues. 
Would we be able to expand the Montreal Protocol to take on the carbon problem, or would it mean starting over? You could not expand the Montreal Protocol by its terms because it's focused on ozone-depleting substances, some of which are also potent greenhouse gases. But there's no reason that the Paris participants couldn't simply adopt into the Paris Agreement all the methods and tools of technological assessment and economic assessment and um, and flexible goal setting uh, that are embodied in the Montreal Protocol. Or somebody could go to the Montreal Protocol and seek to amend it to include greenhouse gases. So that could occur as well. And yet nobody is proposing that. And that tells you something about the political economy of this issue. So notwithstanding people's stated ambitions, developed countries and developing countries regardless of political leaning, left or right, seem quite comfortable with the current construct. As I indicated, a construct that will not deliver on its on its aims. All right. Let's move to the domestic front. Um, I've seen you speak on several occasions, and you've often emphasized that the government should set environmental standards, but then the government should get out of the way and let the market respond to those. And I take get out of the way to mean stay out of the business of mandating certain things and incentivizing other things. Um, how have we done over the last year on clearing out some of that jungle of mandates and incentives? So first, the ones that are reasonably well-designed are moving forward without any complaint or controversy. We still have the, the Clean Air Act cap-and-trade program for sulfur dioxide. We have an equivalent system for nitrogen oxides. Um, we still have wetlands banking. We still have an incredible regime on fish, on fishing, which is based on catch shares, which is a market-based methodology by which you set the quota but let the let the innovators figure out to effectively achieve it, and then you stop when the quota is met. You're done. Um, so, so all of those systems that have been put in place are really working well. Cafe was an improvement. So, corporate average fuel economy for vehicles. The, the 2007 legislation was an improvement in policy design, but didn't go as far as it should have. The renewable fuel standard was an improvement in f policy design, but didn't go far as it should have. And as it should have means technology-neutral performance-based, rather than picking favored uh, technologies or favored fuels. Um, but it's an improvement. So if we could just finish the job and, and be content to say what we care about is what's the level of sulfur dioxide in the atmosphere? What's the level of nitrogen oxides? How much fuel efficiency do we want? How much fuel as an alternative to petroleum do we want? Um, the marketplace is much better equipped to figure out and innovate on the best solutions at the lowest cost to meeting those goals than having regulators telling you how to do it, when to do it, and what to do. Okay, now... Um the Trump administration has gone after some of the standards. Now, I take it that you you're agree that the government should set some standards, but uh, the Trump administration has talked about weakening fuel economy standards, the chemical safety law, waterways protections, the mercury rule, oil and gas production emissions. Do you count those among poorly designed policies that we should do away with, or do you think some of those have value? Well, I don't think we should do away with any of them. Some of them are ripe for a redesign that should earn consensus support You know, if people have a shared objective as to outcome. Um, CAFE is an interesting example, though. The, the current design, it's legislated, and there's a regulation, and the math by which the regulation works is pretty understood, and it's fairly mechanical. 
but it's largely driven by f- gasoline prices. So it's done on a benefit cost basis um, that, you know, it can be as stringent as the gasoline savings allow. Now, when gasoline prices are really low, then you don't have as much incentive to become more efficient. When gasoline prices are really high, it could drive actually, you know, some pretty tough investment uh, in fuel economy. So that's a classic example of you could take one step further better and redesign CAFE, and the politics will not let it go away. So I kind of like the situation we're in where there's tension to take another look at it, but there's not enough political sway to get rid of it. So hopefully this next iteration can make it better. The same is true on renewable fuels. Uh, In the Bush administration, we actually proposed an alternative fuel standard, not a renewable fuel standard. And we weren't and we didn't differentiate between, you know, create a carve out for ethanol and a carve out for other things. Um, That was a policy flaw that is having some real negative impacts for no good reason that creates then political tension. Um, Again, I have not seen the Trump administration proposing to get rid of that. The politics certainly doesn't support it. President Trump campaigned in favor of biofuels. Um, however, the system could use some improvement, and I hope I hope they look at it. I mean, they have to. There's a there's a period by which you have to reevaluate the program, and they really should. And let me give you one other example. We've had this great work all across the country, 37 states, on renewable portfolio standards. So pushing solar and wind into the fleet mix of all the power producers all over the country. Great start, but can we now grow up and say we got we have a ton of wind and solar? They're in the market. In fact, some of it's quite competitive, depending on what market you're in. Can we convert that to a clean energy standard and have it be emission-weighted? So, so just why should I care whether it's wind or solar or natural gas or nuclear or carbon capture and storage? I don't care. I care about what its emissions output is. And then let them all compete. Let them all compete for a place in the electricity mix. While we keep the baseline of our current nuclear fleet, we keep the baseline of the solar and wind we've got, but now we let the private sector, let them all compete against each other to get us the rest of the way. Uh, That would be a huge and hugely transformative shift um, that would further take advantage of this this big tax reform that we just had. Hundreds of billions of dollars are about to flow into the private economy, leveraged, right? This is flowing in as equity. It will get reinvested with corresponding debt so those hundreds of billions of dollars would translate to trillions of dollars of new infrastructure investment. If we had a market-based standard that was performance-based and technology neutral, then that trillions of dollars of new infrastructure would find its way to really good outcomes. Do you see an, a way of, of having that happen at the federal level under the current climate? Um, not right now. And so this feels a lot like some other issues like welfare reform where you need a critical mass of states to get there. But all it would take is eight or nine states as they renew the renewable portfolio standards to convert the next generation. So don't get rid of what's on the books, but make the next period technology neutral and performance-based. Make it a clean energy standard. Um, Once you've got eight or nine critical mass states doing that, that would give comfort that it can work. It would broaden the base of political constituencies because now natural gas can compete for its share. Um, it's better than coal, but not as good as nuclear. Nuclear has a full and fair and fighting chance, but it shouldn't get any special favors. 
and it will drive the innovators in wind, solar, and in other forms of distributed generation. It will give them the uplift they need to secure the investment dollars they need to become more ubiquitous. Uh, let's focus in a little more on energy now that we're there. You've been an advocate of nuclear energy as a carbon-free energy source. The Energy Secretary, Rick Perry, did propose a rule to subsidize coal and nuclear energy. That rule failed. What did you think of that approach? So that approach is a very specific and kind of wonky introduction into one of the markets, the PJM market, um, under the FERC rules. It was kind of esoteric. Um, so I want to start with that. So a lot of attention was paid to it, but the outcome one way or the other is ultimately inconsequential to what we're talking about because it's, it's at the margin. It's trying to keep some older coal plants open and some older nuclear plants open to provide reliability support. And, you know, there's just good science, good evidence as to how much of that is really needed. Um, and so that I just wouldn't look to that as the place where this is going to happen. Um, I do believe that the markets will more rapidly deploy the innovative technology. So the bigger game is how do we finish the job of restructuring the electricity markets so that they are more market-driven rather than regulated rate-driven. Um, and so that's, that's the big issue in front of us. 17 of our states have some form of competitive electricity supply. That's about half of the usage. And, it is, and if you look right now, the difference between the wholesale rate of power and the retail rate of power is bigger than it's ever been. What that means is in the competitive markets, power is being delivered really inexpensively and much more cleanly. And in the non-competitive markets, retail consumers are paying much more than we have to for, for power that has higher emissions of all stripes. And so that's just that imbalance has to be corrected. There's only two ways to correct it. Go back to old school rate regulation on everybody or go forward to a fully, um, a fully competitive supply system in which the innovators you know, can leap ahead um, and, and actually you know, let the market forces put the inefficient operators out of business and reward the efficient operators and get more technology introduced into the system faster. That sounds like it could be troublesome for nuclear power, which um, has high ha capital costs up front and uh, some, you know, economic difficulties competing. Um, do you think that nuclear will fare well on its own in that kind of system? I don't know. Uh, I am among the most ardent supporters of a lot more nuclear energy to help us reach the Paris goals. And by the way, the Paris goals, based on the current technology developed to us, are unattainable unless the developed world gets back into building nuclear power plants, in addition to the solar, the wind, the geothermal, the efficiency, and everything else. Um, and so that's a huge problem. But it is my view we cannot get to the other side of this in places like America, where we have a, a hybrid electricity system, until there's a much more vibrant, certain market and a clear market signal on where we want our emissions to be. So, again, I think nuclear should have a full and fair fighting chance. And if it can succeed in a redesigned competitive electricity market with a clear federally stated goal on emissions, um, we'll get a lot more nuclear uh, because the economies of scale will support it. Uh, right now, it's you know impossible in America to invest in new nuclear. So you've spoken about the importance of repatriating capital to yeah. to in, uh, energize energy innovation in the U.S. Do you think the Republican tax plan will help with that? It is my belief that President Trump's 
single biggest environmental accomplishment will be tax reform combined with the infrastructure uh, streamlining because the numbers are so big. Uh, we are sitting on a lot of old, outdated infrastructure, power plants, highways, uh, building infrastructure, manufacturing facilities uh, that have been awaiting an infusion of new capital. And we all know from our own personal lives, when I replace my refrigerator with a new one, it's a heck of a lot more efficient. When I put my new roof on the house, you know, I, I tend to put the, uh, the, um, the insulation in the attic at the same time, making things a lot more efficient. It's only when you have the money to do capital stock turnover, when you're actually replacing or modernizing um, old, old infrastructure, that you get these big gains. And if you take the new money that's sitting on corporate balance sheets that now has to get redeployed, now, some of it will go for dividends, and that will go back to people who invest in their own efficiency. Some of that will be share buybacks, increasing the value of these companies that allows them to borrow more money at cheaper rates. However you do the math, we're talking about ultimately trillions of dollars, more money than was available before the policy that will allow us to replace old, inefficient stuff with newer, cleaner, much more efficient stuff. And, and the numbers are so much bigger than any single policy I've ever worked on. The Clean, the Clean Air Act, uh, you know, Acid Rain Trading Program was a $24 billion investment in pollution control. Uh, the, you know, so, so a few subsequent ones have been a little bit higher than that. But you're talking about tens of billions of dollars in some of these uh, regulations that people focus on. This, this tax reform combined with infrastructure streamlining, that's hundreds of billions or trillions of dollars. Um, so I'm all about following the money toward investments and cleaner outcomes. I've heard you say, too, that you'd like to see energy subsidies taken back and then um, you invested in more research and development. We've seen Trump propose cuts to energy R&D in the Department of Energy, and the oil subsidies seem to be intact. Are there any bright spots on the research and development front? Uh, not bright spots right now, although if you look at the new budget agreement, and if you look at the allocations the Congress have made to the various departments, and they'll, they'll get to finer point in the next couple of weeks, and then you look at the reset that President Trump did with his budget um, and the delay in the, what's called the Green Book that has all the, the detail, I think, I think you're going to see um, uh, sustained but not increased progress on R&D budgeting, which is a national travesty because the leap forward will come from the basic materials breakthroughs that are coming out of our national labs, out of our private research R&D, and out of academia. Those are the, break, that, those are the breakthroughs we need. It's, it's in quantum computing, it's in bioscience, it's in nanotechnology, and these other materials that will give us more productivity with much less burden on the environment and on our energy and on our water use. Um, and you just got to put money at that. But the payoff is enormous. Um, and, but and so, meanwhile, we're subsidizing technologies that are already well-proven to the tens of billions of dollars. Um, and by the way, that's a moral hazard. It, it, it means we're, we're not having the market test the existing technologies against each other by cross-subsidizing them sort of out of balance to their, their outcomes, what they deliver in terms of real outcomes. And so we're actually slowing down the pace of innovation uh, in the very technologies we've been trying to support with these incentives. Um, so, so we're backwards on both fronts. So I would strip, strip out all the incentives uh, and repurpose a chunk of it to R&D and give the rest back to the taxpayer. Um, that's what I would do. What do you think about this promise to save the coal industry? Is any progress being made 
in helping the coal industry to survive? Uh, no. The only way to save the coal industry is for there to be certainty around the emissions profile, uh, for there to be a, a clarity as to the methods by which you can properly permit and ensure um, uh, environmental uh, health and safety controls on coal mining operations in America. Uh, and then with some very important technology advances by which you can capture the carbon and reuse it from coal-fired power generation. Now, the only way to make all that happen to ha is to have a thriving and forward-looking coal industry. Uh, and so, you know, the coal industry should be pushing for regulatory certainty on carbon abatement, which under any scenario would leave a substantial portion of electricity mix available for coal, but we want it to be new coal with new technology and new plants, not old coal sitting around in old plants uh, without the prospect of advancing the, the availability of carbon capture and storage. Now, why is this important? China has added 3 billion tons of emissions, largely from coal-fired generation, over the last 10 years. And they are not investing anything in carbon abatement from coal. So if we don't figure out in America and make it an economically and regulatorily viable solution, we're not going to achieve anything close to our greenhouse gas abatement ambitions. I mean, you may as well go home. Um, and it, I'm, I'm just astounded in the developed world how little money is being spent on carbon abatement from coal when we're the only ones that are going to do it. And so we could bring our emissions to zero in Europe and America, and it'll have no consequence on long-term uh, projections of the impacts of climate change. Um, and so we're, we're missing the point. Coal matters a lot. And we've got to think through all the pieces to, to make it work. Um, otherwise, if you if you have the most um, worrisome view about climate change, you'll be facing those consequences. Um, and you know the purity of opposition to coal is not going to bring you the result you seek. Okay. Now you've said that the tax reform and infrastructure plan, at least so far, is looking like that's going to be Trump's biggest environmental accomplishment. Yeah, I think so. If he asked you, uh, Jim, what's one thing I should do differently? What's the most important thing? What would you tell him? So in addition to those two things, I would take a look at the, the, the power plant regulations at the federal and state level, and I'd take a look at the vehicle regulations, the fuels, and I'd take a look at the vehicle efficiency regulations, and I would, I would simply keep them at the goals they're at, maybe set some new, slightly more stringent ones, but I would convert them to performance-based outcomes. The sooner you do that, then the easier it is then to calibrate them and toggle them and make sure they achieve our goals while enhancing economic growth um, rather than, and then not have to duke it out you know, endlessly like we've been doing and, and causing these delays of 10 and 15 years on progress that could otherwise be economically efficiently obtained. And you're talking about... Um emissions standards, right, as opposed to efficiency, fuel efficiency. Yeah, because that's what, you, that's what we care about in the end. So we've, we've, we're focusing on all the wrong outcomes. At the end of the day, it's the emissions profile of our power generation fleet and our vehicle fleet. There's a dose of security that goes with that um, in terms of how much we rely on foreigners for our fuels writ large, not just petroleum, but also, you know, imported uranium and other things. So there's a security angle of that that has to be taken into account. But but the simplest thing the president could do, the Congress could do, and it should enjoy bipartisan support, is let's focus on agreeing on the shared objective. And that, that you can do the math and compromise to the extent you need to, as long as we're making progress. 
and then make these uh, make these policies again performance based and technology neutral. Let the inventors and the innovators um, and the and the infrastructure deployers of America do the math on the cheapest way to do it, rather than rely on regulators um, with all the politics that that entails to try to predict what the future will look like. You know, when I was running around with my Motorola Razor phone after I got rid of my Nokia phone, um, nobody would have predicted that two years later I'd be abandoning both for my iPhone. It's no different than when it comes to these, you know, big, massive investments in uh, environmental improvement. So your former post at the Council of Environmental Quality has been vacant for more than a year, and the administration has had a hard time filling it with someone who can get confirmed. Does that say something about the council under Trump? Well, so there's there's been some great people that have been that are in the brought in administration, seasoned professionals who know well what they're doing, and they, they that include some really seasoned professionals that are working um, in non-confirmed roles at CEQ today. That's my old my old office, the Council on Environmental Quality. Um, that said, um, the deputy secretaries of the key environment resource agencies they're only recently on their jobs. They're all very good. I mean, they're very, very good. But key assistant secretaryships have not been filled. Other politically appointed positions have not been filled. And, and this is the engine oil of getting you know, pol- forward policy decisions made. And so this delay in staffing these functions um, will make it very, very hard to make the kind of progress on the deployment of this capital we discussed, you know, the infrastructure um, streamlining, um, the, the regulatory uh, reinvention. Uh, it, it, it just makes it exceedingly difficult if you don't have the leadership with the Senate-confirmed status to negotiate with the Congress um, you know, to produce reasonable outcomes. So I'm dismayed at the pace of things. It's got to pick up if there's to be as much progress as I think we could achieve. Your former uh, boss, George W. Bush, is in, enjoying a surge in popularity lately. He's about twice as popular as he was when he left office. Do you find that it's easier um, to highlight the Bush administration's environmental accomplishments in contrast to what's happening now with the Trump administration? I think what matters always are results. And so I am always skeptical of anyone be they a Republican or a Democrat, uh, be they George W. Bush or Barack Obama or Donald Trump, taking credit for a proposal. Um, and so the time to take account and to sell the benefits you know, to, or to reward publicly the benefits of your policy is when the benefits have been delivered. Um, we can say that confidently on fuel economy. We can say that confidently on renewable fuels. We can say that confidently on building efficiency standards, on brownfield redevelopment, and a whole host of other things, all of which we had intention to achieve those outcomes, but nobody deserves praise until you're done. And the other point is this. Every one of those efforts is a team sport. Republicans and Democrats, federal and state, you know, non-governmental people and governmental people. And so when the accounting comes and the results are in, it's a team of thousands that deserves the credit. It's only presidential leadership that helps push it through. Uh, and so... Even now when you say, you know, President Bush should get credit, well, I think he deserves credit for being for providing the leadership to get these things through. But the people who have earned the credit in the end are the people who delivered on the policy. 
the innovators who made it work, the people who found ways to find cheaper ways to achieve the compliance outcomes. I just don't want to leave that out of the mix. There's no single individual that pulls this off. A president's important, a necessary but not sufficient condition to success. Some other Republicans who are concerned about the carbon pollution issue have rallied around the idea of a carbon tax. And I know you've said before that, or you've noted that there's bipartisan opposition to a carbon tax. It doesn't seem like a very politically viable policy. And yet James Baker and George Schultz are out there really pushing for a revenue neutral tax on carbon emissions. Is that just a pipe dream? What do you think of that idea? So the um, I've been working on these issues for a very long time. And there's many ways, you know, many steps to heaven. And there's many ways to get to where you want to go. I'm a big fan of finding the one that meets the political economy of the moment. Um, under any scenario, Republican or Democrat, uh, a, a direct tax on anything is a tough pill for their constituents to swallow. Um, and typically, it's got to be clearly tied to a direct benefit. So, for example, the debate right now is to whether there should be an increase in the ta gas tax. Now, interestingly, that's an indirect carbon tax. Uh, but the rationale for it is to pay for the highways. Now, user fees are actually a, a classically conservative um, uh, policy instrument, which is to say, you know, the people who benefit from the particular piece of infrastructure should pay for it. Then there's some broader social benefits that have to get factored in. So we always end up in this gray zone of how much is paid directly by the user and how much is shared across the economy. Um, I'm a market guy. I, I like putting the you know, putting the the um, the requirement to comply, if you will, at the where where it can best be influenced, and then the benefits will flow through the market economy. So I'm all about simplification. This is a long way of saying that I think um, a clean energy standard um, or a well-designed cap and trade in this environment is a better way to achieve emission abasement ends than a carbon tax or than incentives. Um, at this moment in time, because you can invest against the clean energy standard and the the math of it, the, the, the dollars and cents of it stays in the economy, in the tradable part of the sector. Um, I just think it's more effective. Uh, and uh, so I believe that every minute we spend talking about a carbon tax is a minute we're not spending talking about a policy instrument that has a greater chance of uh, earning consensus. Uh, academically, carbon tax makes perfect sense. But why not just incentivize everything? You know, if you want to charge everyone $10 to do the right thing, why don't you pay them $10 to do the right thing? From a market perspective, it's the same thing, except the behavioral economists here in Chicago might have some interesting insight into that. Um, I'm simpler than that. I, you know, I think the sector accountable for the emissions should understand what its objectives are over an investable period of time. Um, and with that certainty, they'll make the right investments. And then the, the, the benefits of that and some of the costs of that will flow through appropriately to the user base. That's all the time that we have. Thank you, Jim, for joining us today. Thank you so much. Real pleasure. And thanks all of you out there, the listeners. Make sure to subscribe to Off the Charts wherever you get your podcasts, including on Epic's website at epic.uchicago.edu. Thanks for tuning in. I'm Jeff McMahon.